It is good to be with you once again. Most of you here probably don't remember, but it's about 10 years ago I preached here as a sort of a fill-in. And um, I think it was one service and about half as many people. So under the leadership of Pastor Russell, obviously great things are happening here. And I can tell that once I pulled in the parking lot and I saw your new sanctuary being built, and my congratulations to each and every one of you, as that old commercial says, you've come a long way, baby. <laughs> of course, my remembrance of Reformation goes back many years to when I was the associate pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Huntington Beach back in the early 80s. And Reformation was part of our conference at that time, and so I knew your pastors back then. But anyway, it's good to be with you today, and I thank Pastor Russ for the invitation to be able to share with you. As I begin my talk today, I need to begin with a confession. The confession is just simply to try to put into context what I'm about to say, because you need to know my background to understand the significance of what I've learned along the way in my life. During my formative years, and I don't know where this came about, but I had developed a self-righteous attitude towards people of wealth. Now, there's a lot of people in the church that I understood growing up and in years even pastoring had the same idea. And we probably got it from the same, same source or similar source and that was basically that people of wealth somehow are tainted or corrupted by their wealth. And that idea of mine was reinforced later on in life when I went to the Lutheran Bible Institute when I was up in Los Angeles. I got the impression every now and then as they talked about wealth that it was the corrupter of the soul. And then years later I go on to a Lutheran seminary which was a little left of center and there we learned from a few people in the faculty that wealth is the corrupter of society. And there was no getting around it in my mind that if you had wealth, you were indeed corrupted or tainted. Now some of you would say, but pastor, wouldn't you have said that doesn't God love all people equally? And I would have to say theologically speaking, yes, but in my heart of hearts, I would have probably said, but I really believe that God loves those who have less far more than he loves those who have much. I share this because if you had told me, ever told me that there was such thing as godly wealth back then, I would have said you were crazy and I would have proof text that with the story of the rich young ruler which for many people is the paradigm for wealth. You know the story where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, and what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. And he says, this I have done. And then Jesus says, then go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. What I heard Jesus saying in this story, and I've heard it preached on numerous occasions, is that, you know, you're doing all the right things, but you got this one corruptible thing in your life, and you better wash your hands of it real quick, or you're never going to make it into heaven. Well, as you might surmise from my sermon title today, something happened to me 
along the way that adjusted, I should say significantly readjusted, my thinking in this matter. Some of that change came as a result of just growing older and wiser. You know, that youthful idealism, everything is just black and white, you know, we just want to put everybody in a box, and I certainly was guilty of that. But probably the most significant event in my life happened when God, I was up at Azusa Pacific University, and God brought the girl of my dreams into my life. And we fell in love. And after we became engaged, I soon discovered that she came from a family of significant means. Now, if you can't quite grasp the cognitive dissonance I was going through at that time, picture this. I'm a fine, young Jewish boy. I obey all the traditions of worship and dietary laws. I go off to college. I fall in love with the girl of my dreams, only to discover that her parents are pig farmers. <laughs> Since you have grasped my con that consternation of that young man, you can grasp what mine was at that time. I said, God, what are you doing to me? I thought poverty was next to godliness, and you're taking me the other way around. And as I had to wrestle with this reality, I began wondering, and I came up with three possibilities of what's happening here. One, this is a divine comedy. <laughs> Two, God, you're teaching a self-righteous young man a lesson or two. Three, there is a purpose in this. Well, after many years of marriage, 34 this December, I finally came to the reality, the answer to that multiple choice question was for all of the above. There is no question in my mind that God got a huge chuckle out of bringing me together with my wife. And it's not the first time he had a great laugh at my expense. When I was at LBI, I remember one day emphatically telling God, I will never be ordained. And of course, you know what happens when you use that word never. It just sort of gets God's cackles and he goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> Seven years later, I was ordained over at Grace Lutheran in Huntington Beach. Secondly, my self-righteousness took it on the chin. I began to meet some very wonderful people whom God had blessed in enormous ways, who took the stewardship of that wealth seriously and responsibly. But even more than that, I began to re-understand the whole story of the rich young ruler. Through my study of scriptures, I made too many, too interesting observations that were blinded to me in my youth. One, the rich young ruler is the only person that we know of that Jesus particularly said those words to, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. One, and another aspect of that, all these years I lived under the impression that as Jesus spoke those words, and we need to understand that when you only have printed word, two-thirds of communication is missing. Body language and tone of voice. So we fill that in. And I always felt those words in with a spirit of condemnation and shame on you. And then one day I'm reading Mark's gospel. And in Mark's gospel, he records it this way. Jesus looked on him and loved him.
It was a word of compassion and concern, not shame and condemnation. The second thing I began to learn, and this is what surprises a lot of people, is that Jesus was surrounded by wealthy people. Jesus' three core disciples, Peter, James, and John, were fishermen. Now, what you need to understand about that day and age, because we look at them and we say, hey, they didn't have air conditioning, they didn't have cars, they were poor, right? Well, the reality of it was, back in that day, the poor was a guy that stood on the corner every day in the market, hoping to be hired to go out and work in the fields for that one denarii so he can feed his family for that day. It was a hand-to-mouth existence. That was the poor. But Peter, James, and John were fishermen. That meant they had capital because they bought a boat. And when you really get down to it and look at it, they were the bourgeois class of their day. They were the businessmen of their community. And then there's Joseph of Arimathea, who gave Jesus his burial tomb, which in reality really only leased it to him for three days. (laughs) You had to have great wealth to have your own burial tomb. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who most people believe were people of wealth, it was to their home that Jesus would often escape to in order to get away from it all. And yet, never once do we hear or say to him, any of them, shame on you. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And why is that? Well, I began to understand and see that God does indeed have a divine and eternal purpose for the wealth that he entrusts to each and every one of us. Now, I know some of you are thinking today, well, I don't fall into the category of the wealthy. But let me reassure you, though, each and every one of us here today does have a monicum of wealth. It may vary in degree from one talent, ten talents, a thousand talents, however that goes. But what's important here is not the size of our wealth, but the primary understanding that whatever wealth we have, God has invested in us in order to be used for his purposes and his glory. We see that fact most clearly in our first lesson, Genesis 12. God speaking to Abraham. In fact, his very first words to Abraham, and I often think of these words as sort of the preamble of that covenant life. This is the foundation of what our life is going to be like from here on out. He says, I will make you a great nation and bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. There are three things going, under, uh, under, uh, going on here that we need to understand. First of all, who is the source of Abraham's blessings or wealth, that great land and all that's supposed to come with it in the future? God is. And if the biblical witness is saying that God is the author and the source of all his wealth to come, then how can we say it's corrupted or tainted? Because God is only the giver of good things. The second thing we see that wealth is more than just our possessions. It's more than our money, our land, our homes, our cars. There's an intrinsic wealth that God gives to us. To Abraham, he says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a good name, a great reputation. How valuable is that? And along with all the other intrinsic gifts of time and talents, things we really can't possess our own, things that are only given to us. And we see that God invested in Abraham for a purpose. 
God told Abraham, I will bless you. But he didn't say, I will bless you so that you can hoard it and have everything you want in life. But he says, I will bless you so that you, too, will be a blessing. Some years ago, many years ago now, I should say, I wrote a letter to Millard Fuller, the founder of Habitat for Humanity. I read his book, The Theology of a Hammer. And in the book, he tells his story of how he was a very successful investment banker. And so successful and so obsessed and so compulsive about his ambitions that it began to undermine his relationship with his family and his God. Then one day his wife Linda came to him and gave him the ultimatum. It's either us and God or the business. Take your pick. Not quite in those words, but you get the message. Fortunately, he came to his senses and realized what he was about to lose. And so he forsook the business world, took his family, went off to a Christian commune in Georgia, and from there to Africa, and there the whole idea of habitat for humanity began to form. Well, in writing the letter, I asked him, I said, Miller, would you advise any other Christian of means to do the same thing you did, to abdicate our wealth, give it to the poor, and go off and serve them? And what he wrote back to me was something quite interesting. He said, if every believer gave away everything he or she had, then we would be abdicating all the wealth to the world. And who then would fund the work of God's kingdom? What I'm hearing through both Abraham and Millard Fuller is that wealth does indeed have a divine purpose. And that purpose is to bring about Blessing to God by honoring him, blessing to our neighbor by helping them. Yes, blessing to our family by providing for them. And in case you're wondering what Jesus' thought is on that matter, look to our gospel lesson in Luke 16, verse 9. Let me share it. I tell you, says Jesus, use your worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcome in eternal dwellings. The operative word in that verse, I believe, is the word used. Notice, he didn't, I say, give all your wealth away. Yes, we have to give and we have to share it. But he did not necessarily, it's implied. But he says, use your wealth. See, why I emphasize that? Because too, all too often we make the mistake that God's primary concern for us is that we recognize that he is the owner of all. How many agree that God is the owner of all? Okay. Now let me ask you a second question. How many of you say that God has use of all that you have? That's the problem. You see, God's not concerned about ownership. He knows it's all his because when the last person leaves earth, it's all going to be left behind because none of us have ever checked out of this place with the U-Haul tied to us. <laughs> but what God says, I have entrusted to this, but the problem is I got all this, but I don't have use of it. Usage is important to God as well as the ownership. And let me give you a little story as to why I think that is. Back in the 90s, my father-in-law had a 65 Mustang GT that used to be in the family farm, barn. Uh, 
and it just sat there collecting dust. And I was a mechanic back in my college days, once one of my many full-time career jobs I had before being a pastor. And uh, I always wanted to build and restore a car, and so finally I talked him out of it, bought the car from him, brought it home, and I says, now I got a car to work on, a real classic. But something was a real amiss. The car was powder baby blue. No self-respecting man would ever be found <laughs> in a baby blue Mustang. So I went and had it painted, and I had it painted Porsche, Porsche red. And it was cherry paint job with a white GT stripe down the side. And I looked at that beautiful paint job, but then I looked inside the interior, and I go, oh. So then I did the interior with red and white pony interior, and oh, and everything good. And then you open up the engine compartment, and oh. Then I detailed that. You know where it's going. So from stem to stern, I had the whole thing matching. I had a show car quality car. In fact, the first time out, I entered it in a show, I got first place in my division. Pride of ownership, right? But not for long. You see, I had put so much money into that car, I was afraid to drive it. I couldn't go to the store in it because I was afraid someone opened the door and put a ding in it. I couldn't go on a two-day trip with my wife because I'm afraid I have to leave it out someplace and somebody would steal it. And so the car sat there. I had the pride of ownership, but I lost the joy of it because I lost the use of it. And I believe that's the way it is God. His real joy comes not from the ownership, when, when finally he gets the use of all that he owns. When we come to God and we surrender back, and say, Lord, he... This is what, I got, a, I got a vacation house. How can I use this for? And God goes, oh, goody, goody, goody. Let's figure out a way how we could use that. That's what God gets excited about. And when he gets excited about it, his pleasure begins to spill over. And it fills our lives. How many of you remember the movie Chariots of Fire from the early 80s? You don't have it, get it, put it in your library. It's a great movie. The story is about two Olympic runners running for Great Britain in the 20-something Olympics in, in Paris. And one of those runners was a young man named Eric Little, who was a son of Scottish missionaries who were serving in China. At the beginning of the movie, he's back in Scotland trying to raise support for the mission. And the way he did it is that he was fast, and he would run in all these various meets, and uh, he would win, and People were coming up to him and following him, and he would share the gospel, ask for the meets, and invite them to church in the evening, all to promote the mission of, the, of his parents. Well, sure enough, the word spread of how fast this young Scotsman was that he was invited to be on the Olympic team for Great Britain. Well, when his sister heard word of that, she became very concerned. Now, I'm going to put it in my own words because this is how I heard it. How can you do such an unholy thing like running when we got the mission and the gospel to take care of? She was fearful that all this running is going to take away from the mission, that her brother would go chase this false dream somehow and lose his way. 
Well, in this beautiful scene on a hillside outside the town where they were at, he comes to his sister and he says, I've made a decision. I'm going back to China. Oh, Lord, he's saved. Oh, all is, oh this is so good. This is so wonderful. But then he says, but I'm also going to run first. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run for God, when I use my gift for him, I feel his pleasure. When we, out of faith and love, use our wealth for God and his purposes, we too will feel his pleasure and it will spill over into an overflowing joy in our lives. There is a Christian businessman that I've heard of named Bill And he was quite successful in the 80s. And he had a goal that when he got to a certain part in his business, he was going to go out and buy his dream boat. Well, that day came. He went out and bought this baby yacht. And for two, three days, he just enjoyed it. You know, his dream had come true. But shortly after that, he began to suffer what I refer to as Christian's buyer's blues. Now, you know what buyer's blues is, right? That's buyer's remorse, buyer's regret. Well, Christian buyer's blues is a little, has a little different twist to it. Christian buyer's blues says, did I spend too much money on myself? Am I being too selfish having such a luxury in my life? Now, he was smart enough to ask himself the question, was this God speaking to him Or was this some false sense of a guilty conscience? He wasn't certain, so he decided he was going to pray about it until God gave him an answer. And whatever the answer was, that's what he was going to do. Keep it or get rid of it. Well, one night praying, he thought he heard God whisper in his ear, use it for my glory. Use it for my glory. The next morning when he got up, he got on the phone and he called the local YMCA, talked to the director, and he says, do you by chance have the need of a large boat in order to take inner city children out on the ocean to explore the wonders of God's creation? And to his surprise, the response was, do we? Something wonderful, magical happened at that moment to Bill and his boat. His boat just got baptized. It got born again because now it's serving a divine purpose. And what do you think happened to Bill in the process? He discovered a newfound joy in his boat because what was, was once merely for selfish, a selfish attempt at temporal pleasure now has a divine purpose with eternal significance. And that, in essence, is the difference between godly wealth and worldly riches. And God, that is, godly wealth is nothing more than worldly riches, those things that we have claimed for ourselves and cling to ourselves that have been surrendered back to God for his use and his purposes. But before you begin to think that you have to have a large boat or great fortune in order to be used of God, remember the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. You know who the unsung hero of that story was, don't you? 
It was the little boy who had all the five loaves and two fish, hardly anything worth making a dent in the crowd. But because he was willing to allow Jesus to use the little he had, he became part of something greater and more significant than he ever would have imagined. Friends, our journey of faith involves more than just the surrendering of our hearts and minds to Jesus Christ. It also includes a surrender of all our wealth, time, talent, treasure. But understand that process of returning to God what he first has given us is not a one-time overnight event. It's a process that you and I will wrestle with as we go throughout our entire life and will not be completed until the day he calls us home to himself. But like with every great journey, it always begins with a first step. And some of you here today may have never taken that first step where you said, Lord, I've surrendered my life, but I've held everything else back from you. Maybe it's out of fear. I don't know. But God's calling to you, begin to surrender that. Maybe some of you have already started, but there's the next step in the journey that you must take in order to continue on. And the reason you've been reluctant is because there's something or one thing in your life that you've been holding on to. And your grip is so tight on it, you've squeezed all the life and joy and light out of it. God says, release it to me so that you can enjoy it once again. But whatever it is that you're wrestling with at this moment, the sharing of your time, your talents, your treasures, I'd like you as you come forward to the communion this morning to bring it to the altar and lay it as your offering back to God. And as you do, say the simple words like, Lord, I give this back to you as you've first given it to me. Show me how I can be an agent with the gift that you have blessed me with so that I can be a blessing to my church, to my community, to you, my God. And I assure you that as you begin to discover how God can use you and your wealth for his purposes, you too will begin to feel God's pleasure, which will overflow into a new life of newfound joy. Amen.